0: Followers of this show have definitely picked up that I'm a big old nerd for superhero comics, and one of my favorite elements of reading superhero titles that have been running continuously for generations is looking at how certain characters have been interpreted in differing historical eras. One can learn a lot about the dominant values of a certain time period based upon how they looked at Wonder Woman, Archie, Spider-Man, or anybody else who's been having monthly installments serialized for 50 years or more. Batman is arguably the most pro of superheroes. Thousands of writers and artists have worked on Batman projects since the character's nineteen thirty-nine debut. He's been revamped, updated, altered, lampooned, and translated so often that I don't think that there's a wrong version of him really. You know, the Dark Knight oh, I
1: would argue with that.
0: The Dark Knight Returns is Frank Miller's version of Batman. The nineteen eighty nine film is Tim Burton's version of Batman. The Dark Knight trilogy is Christopher Nolan and David Goyer's take on Batman. <laughs> However, being a millennial, I don't see Batman the Animated Series as Bruce, Tim, and Paul Denny's version of Batman. That iteration is simply Batman. It is the platonic ideal of Batman, a perfect balance of all prior iterations and the standard bearer of all subsequent iterations. So yeah, like a lot of people with my background, I consider Batman, Mask of the Phantasm to be the best Batman movie. I didn't do this right away. I wanted to do a couple of the uh, other films because I wanted to ramp up to it. But uh, yeah, I, I decided that this week is the time, so this one's a big deal to me. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me on this one is my brother Sylvan, who arguably loves this movie even more than I do.
1: Yeah, this is one of my top three favorite movies of all time.
0: Also here is Cheryl, who hasn't seen this since it was on VHS.
2: Yeah, part of me was very disturbed when you handed me the case for it, and it wasn't like a weird crunchy plastic. Even though I haven't had
1: a VCR, and I don't even know how long, I actually still have the, the VHS somewhere in my possession.
0: And the little graphic novel that came with it.
1: That I probably don't have.
0: The film opens with Batman breaking up a meeting of Gotham crime bosses, led by Chucky Saul. They're going over a counterfeit operation. As Saul escapes in his car, he is attacked by a cloaked figure, the Phantasm. Although, this figure is only rarely referred to as such. Saul is killed when Phantasm causes his car to speed out of control and crash into a building. Batman is seen at the scene and is blamed for killing Saul, with Councilman Arthur Reeves vowing to have him arrested. Later on, at a party where Bruce is given some shit for uh, dating flighty women who don't have much of a structured future with him, he flashes back to an instance where a very young Bruce Wayne meets Andrea Beaumont while visiting his parents' grave.
2: That's where you pick up the ladies.
0: If you're Batman.
1: That's where you find people with similar traumas that go with yours.
0: They can bond over that, and they did. They begin a relationship while Bruce makes his first attempts at crime fighting. He puts on, like, a ski mask and foils some robberies, but he's discouraged because the crooks do not fear him.
1: They think he is silly because... This concept is actually quite silly.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He starts getting heavier with uh, Andrea and he's conflicted about whether to commit to this relationship or to his vow to his parents who defend Gotham City as a vigilante. He ultimately proposes marriage to Andrea, and she accepts, but then very soon afterwards mysteriously leaves Gotham with her father, businessman Carl Beaumont, ending the relationship in a Dear John letter. She dumps him via text, essentially. Heartbroken over this, and after discovering this rad cave with all these bats in it, Bruce assumes the mantle of Batman. Back to the present day, the Phantasm murders another gangster, Buzz Bronski, in the same cemetery that Bruce met Andrea.
1: In one of the coolest death scenes ever done in one of these uh, Batman the Animated Series first. That that one stayed with me. That was so cool.
0: Buzz's bodyguards see the Phantasm flee the scene and uh, mistake it for Batman.
1: His incompetence.
0: Mm. The next day, Batman investigates the scene of Bronski's death and encounters Andrea, inadvertently revealing his identity to her since, you know, he was by his parents' tombstone. She is not surprised by this.
1: Yeah, it's more like a momentary like, oh, and then think about everything she knows about him, that totally makes sense.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that instance where uh, these motorcycle hoodlums who are actually driving mopeds are holding up this dude selling watches under a bridge and Bruce is like, I need to get involved.
2: All of that is shady. Literally
1: all of it. <laughs> Teaching himself martial arts, the fact that he's one of the only people in this world that would have the funds to, like, be Batman, lives in a perfect place for it, cave full of bats that she has seen.
0: <laughs> Batman finds evidence linking Carl Beaumont with Saul, Bronsky and a third gangster, Salvatore Valestra. Or a... Bobby
1: McBob Boss. <laughs>
0: later finding a photograph of the four of them together in Velestra's home. Knowing that Andrea is suddenly back in town around the same time that, uh, Chucky Saul got iced, Batman questions her as to her father's whereabouts, with little success. She's not exactly thrilled that he's been peeping on her, talking with Reeves about, you know, moving her um, European accounts to an American bank and all that. Meanwhile, paranoid that Batman will come for him next, Valestra asks Reeves for help, but is refused. In desperation, he turns to the Joker.
1: An amazing life choice right there. <laughs>
0: What are you, a comedian? The uh, Phantasm breaks into Velestra's home to kill him, but finds a corpse mutilated by Joker venom. The Joker sees Phantasm through a camera on Velestra's body, realizes that the murderer is not Batman after all, and then detonates a bomb he planted in the mansion. Phantasm escapes the blast, but is pursued by Batman before disappearing. The police then show up and begin hunting down Batman with a passion that they do not reserve for any of Batman's villains. Batman is cornered on a construction site and actually—it's
1: and construction site inexplicably full of explosives. <laughs>
0: And he, yeah, uses his, he uses his cape and cowl as a decoy in order to slip away, so he's just sort of running through the streets in his Batman costume without his mask on and only manages to escape because Andrea suddenly shows up and gives him a ride. She then explains to Bruce that she and her father had to suddenly flee the country because he hadn't money from Valestra. Beaumont was eventually able to repay everything, but the long-standing hit put out for his death was not rescinded. And, as Andrea put it, this prompted him to begin attacking the gangsters as the Phantasm. Brought together once again, Andrea and Batman consider resuming their relationship. And then later on, Batman notices that Valestra's chauffeur in the background photo is the Joker.
2: Really good of detective work. Take <laughs> the Sharpie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a red pencil. Yeah,
0: totally different.
2: <laughs> no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and, uh, doodles. Yep, here you have
0: it. The Joker then visits Reeves to press him for information about the Phantasm, believing that Reeves is ordering the killings in order to hide his past history with the mob. Reeves is then poisoned with the Laughing Venom and is taken to the hospital, where Batman interrogates him shortly after he's given a sedative. <laughs> this is, yeah. One of
1: the uh, more awesome scenes in this movie. Oh <laughs> no! Great
0: voice acting there. Reeves confesses that he helped the Beaumonts escape, but he ultimately revealed their location to Valestra after Carl refused to help fund his first election campaign. Both Batman and the Joker deduce at this point that the phantasm is Andrea, and that her return to Gotham was to seek revenge on the Valestra mob for her father's murder and for robbing her of a more fulfilling life with Bruce Wayne. Andrea tracks down the Joker to his hideout in Gotham's abandoned World's Fair, where the final flashback in the film reveals that the actual hit was performed by the Joker, so she saved him for last. They tussle, but are interrupted by Batman, who begs Andrea to stop, but she refuses. Joker prepares to blow up the fair, but is seized by Andrea, who bids Batman goodbye before disappearing in one of her signature smoke clouds. Batman barely escapes the explosions, and as the dust settles, Andrea and the Joker are nowhere to be seen. Later on in the Batcave, Bruce is consoled by Alfred, who assures him that Andrea had fallen into the abyss and could not have been helped. And then, Bruce finds Andrea's locket containing a picture of them together. We next see a sorrowful Andrea who survived the explosion departing Gotham, and a saddened Batman cleared of the accusations against him, resuming his crime-fighting career to the Bat-Signal. And then we get the adult contemporary ballad.
1: It is nineteen ninety-three and the credits really want us to be aware of that.
0: The extremely Kenny G saxophone solo. It's kind of like an Anita Baker song, but it doesn't have any ups to it.
2: Yeah, they were very stingy in my opinion with the saxophone. If you're not gonna have any upbeats, and it has to just be all saxophone.
0: And I found out that uh, the synthesizer player on that was Hans Zimmer, which means that he played music on at least five Batman movies. Alright, for the development of this film. Pleased with the first season of Batman the Animated Series, Warner Brothers contracted writer-producer Alan Burnett to write a script for a direct-to-video feature. His first pitch was to have Batman get captured by his rogues gallery and be subjected to a mock trial at Arkham Asylum.
1: Ooh, that came back. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Their contention being that Batman's one-man war on crime in a theatrical Batsuit is what created them in the, in the first place. Warner Brothers rejected this pitch, saying that it would be too cerebral and con- confusing for the child audience.
1: But, but Phantasm was okay? <laughs> for the record, I saw this movie for the first time when I was seven, and I did not follow any of it. I still loved it, but I had no clue what the hell was going on.
0: As Silva noted, this pitch was eventually re- uh, reworked into Trial, Season 3 episode, and one of the better ones. Mm-hmm. Burnett's next idea was to stage a love story that got into Bruce Wayne's head. Burnett wanted to keep Batman's villains away from most of the action in this particular take. The Joker's presence in the film is a subject disputed by the creative team. Many have claimed that they are reticent to use him at all since they didn't want comparisons to Jack Nicholson's scenery-chewing turn in 1989's Batman movie. Paul Dinney contradicts them, however, saying that the Joker was in the script from the first draft onward. Dinney, however, wanted Harley Quinn to also appear in the film. Michael Reeves pushed for the Joker to be a more minimal presence in the background and not really coming in until the climax. He didn't want any of the satellite Joker characters present. And eventually uh, Tim sided with Reeves. The story was divided among the writing team. Burnett and Martin Pascoe handled uh, the flashback scenes for the most part. Reeves was largely in charge of the film's uh, third act. And Denny handled both the Joker scenes and he also linked the disparate bits together. As he put it, he filled in holes here and there. This happened during, uh, as Denny put, one of the worst incidences of his life where he was mugged and beaten very severely. He needed surgery for a cracked skull. Eventually, he retold these events in a graphic memoir, and it's mostly focusing on his trauma and his slow physical and psychological recovery from it, but he was also writing Phantasm while all that was going on, so bits and pieces here and there. For instance, from the graphic memoir, I learned that I didn't count on being happy that was Reeves's line oh
2: my God.
0: There's also a bit where Reeves is taunting Bruce Wayne at the party, saying, Yeah, you keep getting involved with all these dippy socialites because you can't build a serious relationship with them. And Denny interpreted that as uh, Alan Burnett writing a line, taking a dig at him. Because during this period, Denny was largely involved with a series of aspiring young starlets who believed that Denny could introduce them to Steven Spielberg.
1: Aww. <laughs> 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 so obviously, this is before he married Santana. We teased
0: Paul Dini, not that we know him personally, but we teased Paul Dinny for marrying Zatanna because he clearly has a crush on this fictional character and then met a stage magician who looks a lot like her. That being said, if real-life Nightwing came along. Oh,
2: yeah, yeah, no, all over that.
0: Mask of the Phantasms plot was a loose adaptation of Batman Year Two, written by Mike W. Barr and illustrated by a team of illustrators, including Alan Davis, Paul Neary, Alfredo Alcala, Mark Farmer, and an incredibly young Todd McFarlane. So out of nowhere, Batman has all these spawn capes and various scenes. (laughs) The plot surrounds a Batman in his second year as a crime fighter encountering the Reaper, a homicidal vigilante who disappeared from Gotham shortly before Batman arrived. While this is going on, Bruce Wayne begins a romance with Rachel Caspian, a uh, charity worker studying to become a nun. They get engaged, but things take a turn when Rachel's father is revealed to be the Reaper. He falls to his death in a climactic battle with Batman, causing Rachel to break off the engagement and atone for her father by joining the church. So, they changed this quite a bit.
1: Yeah, um, so having Andy be the phantasm, um, I guess they were hoping that people had read Year two, and we're trying to do a misdirect
0: there. Sounds like that.
1: Um. Anyway, excellent choice. I approve. <laughs> I like this much better than her being a nun. What the hell?
2: Being a nun, then not being a nun, and then totally being a nun. <laughs>
0: the flashback heavy plot structure was derived from the storytelling devices in citizen Kane Burnett in particular wanted to convey sensations of loss regretful choices and the passage of time and you figure just lifting a template from Kane enabled him to do that easily
1: I mean it worked like now that I'm an adult I understand this movie and love it and think the storytelling is great it just went way the fuck over my head when I was the target age for this
0: yeah I was about nine years old when I first saw the film and I I mean, it did take me a couple of watches to figure out that whenever the dissolve happens, we're going to the past. And that's why Bruce looks different. He looks like he's barely out of his teenage years.
2: Hair was different, but not understanding why. With lighting, right? That's where my mind went as a kid. I'm like, oh, it's just darker in this scene.
0: I might have assumed it was an animation error because in the 80s and 90s, sometimes... Oh,
1: yeah, that should happen a lot. Yeah,
0: Batman's chest emblem would disappear or somebody would be a different color or somebody's voice would come out of the wrong mouth. The Phantasm went through dozens of designs before the crew settled on one that they liked. They wanted to evince both the Grim Reaper and the Ghost of Christmas yet to come. Denny wrote that line where the Joker compares him to the Ghost of Christmas future for that reason.
2: It worked. Oh, Good a, design. Yeah, excellent design. That sticks with you.
0: Early on in the production, Warner Brothers decided that the film was going to get a theatrical release instead of a direct-to-video one. This gave the crew eight months to get the film ready. Most theatrical animated films of this time had a two-year development cycle to put this in perspective. Warner Brothers inflated the budget to $6 million in order to cover the added expense. A lot of that went into converting the movie's aspect ratio from a TV dimension to a cinematic one. Bruce Timm in particular hates the rush job that they had to do on this. He can barely look at the film. As Sylvan pointed out, there's a lot of cell dust in this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's something that I wouldn't have noticed without watching the commentary on um, Batman the Animated Series, the, the DVD sets that I have. But um, now that I know that it's there, oh my god, it's everywhere.
0: I think it adds to the ambience, but I get why Tim hates it, because his hands are on. And you, you can't look at your own art and not see all the shitty, horrible mistakes you've made.
1: It is a beautifully animated movie, though.
0: Yeah, there are lots of, like, little gestures that I think add to it so much. Velestra's face as Reeves slams the door on him. (laughs) When Wayne first meets Beaumont, he he quickens his pace to catch up to her and then awkwardly shifts to walking casually because he's trying to impress her but not trying to come off like he
1: is. There is so much acting in the animation. It's so wonderful. Um, This is the most expressive Batman as Bruce has ever been. Yeah,
2: because it's more of a Bruce Wayne movie than a Batman movie.
0: That will be coming up again in the themes. More elaborate set pieces were added or expanded upon in order to make the film feel more movie, including Batman being hunted by the police at the construction site. The most notable addition was an opening title sequence where a computer-generated Gotham City is showcased in an elaborate flying tracking shot as Shirley Walker's choir-filled orchestrations convey.
1: Oh my god, please tell me we're talking about the music too because oh my
0: god, it's so good. Of course we are. This CGI tech was Designed so that the animators would have movable rotating backgrounds that they could then draw over for the buildings in the backgrounds. This was never used for this purpose, at least for Batman the animated series. I wouldn't be surprised if they brought it in for like Superman or Justice League or Batman Beyond. Another added scene was the Joker's battle with Batman in the miniature Gotham City during the film's climax. The producers decided they wanted to throw this in in order to homage uh, Dick Spring.
1: Okay, I can see that. I love when he's got the little building on his head. <laughs>
0: All right, and the music for this. it was com-
1: <laughs> So good!
0: It was composed by Shirley Walker, who was supervising the music for Batman the Animated Series.
1: And that's uh, basically a goddess.
0: After graduating from college, got some of her earlier gigs in uh, film composing, she plays the synthesizers on Apocalypse Now, for example. She is one of the first women to get a credit for scoring a Hollywood film. John Carpenter hired her to do Memoirs of an Invisible Man in 1987. In the years since, she frequently collaborated with Carpenter, Hans Zimmer, and Danny Elfman. She was the conductor for the orchestra for both Scrooged and Batman. So when they were looking for a composer, Elfman said, hey, use her.
2: Very mystical. I dig her stuff.
0: Walker cites this as her favorite movie score overall. I agree. She uses a couple of her motifs from Batman the Animated Series. The Batman theme, obviously. Uh, The Joker theme is brought up a couple of times. The Phantasm gets a very keyboard-heavy theme. And it's spooky.
1: Yeah, I actually put the graveyard murder scene on my um my Halloween
2: playlist.
0: The most noteworthy beefening up of Walker's Arsenal, however, is that she gets
1: to use a choir in this.
2: It's such a nice effect. and everywhere. It's beautiful.
1: Yeah, I had read um an, an interview with Tim at one point about the effect of adding the choir to the the scoring. Like, yeah, no, the music is good and the TV show, of course, it's it's nice, but once you hear it with the vocal track oh my god it's such a different experience it's goosebumps
0: now the subtitles say that they're singing in latin but they're not
2: they are What are they singing
0: again? They are singing a bunch of the names of walker's co-workers backwards
2: what? that's cool i like
1: that so it's why
0: I, it sounds incredibly dramatic
1: but why though? <laughs> maybe it's a another really like weird satana
2: reference <laughs> they're summoning her
0: This random YouTuber I came across does various music mixes, and he did a 15-minute suite of just all the choral cues just fused together into a 15-minute block, and uh, yeah, I play that one pretty often. And, uh, Walker. Oh,
1: I, I had the um the intro music On one of my playlists when I was in college That was to uh, get me pumped To write a paper that I was
2: afraid
0: of Walker won a couple of Emmys One for Batman the Animated Series And the other for Batman Beyond She scored a whole bunch of other films Upon her death, I was only 61 She was one of the most prolific Female composers in Hollywood I don't know if anyone surpassed her since But uh, Batman has a very loaded crew When it comes to composers I generally find something to love with everybody who's worked with the character, but Walker is special to me, and I imagine to you if you're listening to this podcast.
1: Yeah, the, the way that her music aids the storytelling without overtaking it is like truly gifted. And it's very versatile through all of the seasons, you know, like she, she manages to, to change it up perfectly, but without like, you notice the music and it adds to your experience, but it's not distracting and that's a gift.
0: And it is noted by its absence, because in Superman and Justice League, they couldn't afford to use a live orchestra anymore, so there's a lot more digital composers. And a lot of that music works in a different way, but it is definitely not the same. Anyways, Mask of the Phantasm had some tie-in merchandise. Not as much as Batman-related stuff usually gets, but a little bit. There were two novelizations, both released in 1993. Andrew Helfer wrote the YA version, while uh, Geary Gravel was brought on to write an adult version of The Mask of the Phantasm. There was also a graphic novel written by Kelly Puckett and illustrated by Mike Parabek that was included with VHS copies of the film. Kenner, who were already putting out action figures for the TV show, released a wave promoting the film, and this includes the infamous spoiler phantasm figure
1: yeah i have that one i picked it up at a comic con a few years ago
0: when they put out the phantasm figure they
1: it comes with a a removable cowl so you can pop it on and off of her but in the box you can see that it's andy (laughs) (laughs) my my copy of the action figure is still in the box and yeah it's it's an andrea beaumont Figure and then you can put the cowl on it. It's right next to her.
2: That could be anyone. That could be any redhead in in the Batman show ever. Like that you know,
1: be- one of the common criticisms of like Bruce Timm female character designs is that all of the women look the same. But actually, I think Andy is um kind like notably different from the others. She's not just like a color swap of, of other female characters from his universe.
2: All the men look the same too, and sometimes people don't have eyes at all and they're little demons. So. <laughs>
0: (laughs) Tim cited Dan DiCarlo as one of his core influences, and duh. There was also a direct sequel to Mask of the Phantasm, published in Batman and Robin Adventures Annual Number 1. It was written by Paul Denny and illustrated by Ty Templeton, Dev Madden, Mike Parabek, Brandon Cruz, Terry Austin, and Rick Burchey. The plot has Andrea returning to Gotham to warn Batman of a new phantasm who's targeting him specifically. And while I had no qualms about spoiling the phantasm's identity in this podcast episode, I'm not sure if I should ruin who phantasm in the sequel turns out to be. For
2: some reason I haven't read this, so yeah, hold off, I want to read this. (laughs) You have to tell me before you leave because I don't want to read it, I just
0: want to know. Alright, and let's talk about the cast. I mean, at some point, I'm going to do episodes of Batman the Animated Series for this podcast in a way similar to the Twilight Zone. I think we all know that's going to happen eventually.
2: The baby doll one. I love the baby doll
0: one. Let's talk about the voice actors a little bit. Uh, Kevin Conroy is Batman.
1: Yeah, he, he just
0: is Batman.
1: Not a lot to say. He's perfect. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I grew up with him. I hear his voice in my head whenever I read Batman comics. It's hard to overstate how much of an effect that voice has on me. It
2: was so cool when they used it for the video
1: games. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> He's one of the only actors who's taken the role, I feel like, who really works on fleshing out both Batman and Bruce Wayne and gets both of them very right.
2: They have different laughs with him. Batman laughs with him.
1: Yeah, most other Batman actors, they're, uh, they're,
0: they're better
2: at one than the other.
0: Usually, not Conroy, among other things. And just the fact that he has voiced the character and keeps coming back as him over and over again, he's probably done more with Batman than any other performer. It's not controversial to say that he's the definitive Batman, but there are a lot of reasons why that's the case. And he does deliver a very nuanced, effective performance here. He gets a lot to do, and he he really anchors the film in a way that Batman actors usually don't get an opportunity to. And then we have Mark Hamill as the Joker.
1: Also iconic and perfect. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Hamill comments that he keeps getting at the back as the Joker just because he has this large repository of various laughs. He considers that to be the key as to why people like him in the role so much.
1: I mean, the laugh is definitely a big part of it. I'm not going to pretend that that's not the case. But also, there's just this exuberance to him where he's really having fun in the role. And I like how he kind of references... Other things that we enjoy, like Looney Tunes and stuff, in his deliveries. There's a there's a lot of bu- twisted Bugs Bunny in his delivery.
0: I remember reading an interview with Tim where he was talking about why they didn't introduce the Riddler into this until the second season because they didn't know how. Because up until then, the definitive Riddler was Frank Gorshin, who was very manic, and he's like, "We already have an incredibly manic Joker, so." <laughs> We can't do a Riddler sixty six, we have to think of another angle. <laughs> Getting to someone who is specifically in this film, Dana Delaney as Andrea Beaumont. In terms of nuanced affecting performances that carry many scenes in this film, I mean Delaney, holy shit.
2: I have a question for Is she Lois Lane? Yes, Yes. she is. Thank you. Okay, the whole time I'm like, I'm being crazy. I'm being crazy.
0: Tim and Denny and everyone else really liked Dana Delaney's performance to the degree where they doing a Superman cartoon a couple years later. They cast her as Lois Lane. And Delaney is my anchor, Lois Lane.
1: Mine too. See. To me, she's primarily Phantasm, so when I watch the Superman cartoon, I'm always like, oh, Phantasm dyed her hair black. I'm fine with it. Let's let's keep going.
0: (laughs) Particularly the episodes where she is dating Bruce Wayne.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's very weird for me.
0: (laughs) And the way Delaney and Conroy play off each other, it is fun to watch them revisit that, even though Delaney is technically supposed to be a different person.
1: Yeah, I I enjoy the way that they are as Bruce and Lois as well.
0: They changed the character's name from Batman Year Two because Kevin Conroy, apparently in the recording for season one, kept dramatically yelling out Andrea to tease Andrea Romano, the voice director.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh!
1: I like that. <laughs>
0: They're like, hey, we should record that. <laughs> Let's think of a reason to record that.
1: Yeah, and he's my favorite uh, Batman love interest, partially because this movie shaped my opinion on Batman. I'm sure, um, but there's just there's so much good about this character, and you know, they tragically don't work together, which is how Batman should be. <laughs> he I usually get
2: happy endings. He gets Alfred. He gets to come home to Alfred every night, and I bet that happens with like cookies.
0: I usually agree with that, but the past couple of years, the recent Batman comics have...
1: Catwoman's ha- okay. I accept Catwoman.
0: Yes, yeah, Batman and Catwoman, and they know everything about each other, and they're fulfilling each other, and they're having fun together, and they're just total power couple who are filling each other out and making each other better, and I didn't know that I would be into that, but I am really into that.
2: <laughs> Batman needs some good news. Also, like, honestly as a kid, my mind was like I genuinely thought that Cat. Catwoman- woman stole the really shiny necklace and then put it in the bat cave. Like that's where my <laughs> aunt, was kid was like, no, no, no. It's not that Andrea did it. It's that Catwoman did it.
0: And then we have Hart Faulkner as Arthur Reeves, who is essentially playing a smarmy douche, just like he did in Die Hard.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was weird to see Arthur Reeves live action. Because he's playing the
0: same guy. He has a type.
1: I saw Die Hard for the first time last year, so.
0: You're (laughs) like, Phantasm, bubby. Let's
2: go, but yeah.
0: And as Sylvan pointed out before, the interrogation while he has the Joker's laughing gas on him. Excellent vocal performance there.
2: (laughs) Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I
1: enjoyed that both as a child and an
0: adult. All right, then we have Stacy Keach as Carl Beaumont and also the Phantasm's Masked voice in the hopes of throwing you off. We primarily know Keach for playing the father on Titus, a short lived Fox sitcom.
2: Oh!
0: Yeah, didn't that voice feel familiar to you?
2: No.
1: It, it's a little different when he's trying to be fake, nice. Yeah. <laughs> the character that we're familiar with from the sitcom is very
0: mean. Yeah, he's a grumpy, intimidating dad in that. Keech is a very good character actor, has hundreds of credits. He fills out the role very nicely here. I am personally have a nostalgic attachment to that boy, so it's just good to hear him wherever. And then we have Abe Bagoda as Salvatore Valestra. Ooh, he did a good
2: job.
0: Yeah, he is best known for being one of the gangsters in The Godfather. <laughs> No, he's not wheezy. He's out of all of the various quotable lines in The Godfather. Uh, he's the one who says, "It was nothing personal. It's just business." <laughs> I
2: never <seen> the
0: Godfather. <laughs> yes, but you are familiar with that line, even if you didn't know it was from The Godfather.
2: No, I've had people like say that to me, and I didn't get it. Now I understand why there was like a moment of expectation afterwards. <laughs> Thank you for clearing that up.
0: So yeah, is being asked to play essentially the same character he played for the majority of his career. Uh, uh,
1: well, no wonder he's good at it.
0: I do appreciate that even though this is an animated film, none of the performers on this are... S- they all seem to be taking it seriously. They're treating it like it's just a regular-ass movie. E- even Vigoda, and Vigoda was older than Dirt even when Mask of the Phantasm came out, so he, he might have thought that this was going to be a Bugs Bunny deal, but apparently when Romano gave him his instructions, he just played ball.
1: I mean, everything about this movie makes you try to forget that it's a cartoon.
0: In terms of supporting roles that uh, show up on Batman the Animated Series, we have Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. as Alfred. Woo! I mean, I don't dislike an Alfred, even if I hate every other iteration of whatever iconic character is in this particular version of Batman, I'm usually on board with the Alfred. That being said, yeah, this is my Alfred. Oh, yeah. Uh, A number of the great Alfred lines in this. While you're the very model of sanity, by the way, I put away your exploding gas balls.
1: And type mm. Yeah, he he's so good with um it's a balance between sass and affection and worry. There's so much concern. This is Alfred as definitely the distraught mama bird being like, I wanna help him. I don't know how to help him. He's not letting me help him.
0: Diapered your bottom I bloody well ought to. <laughs> <Sir>. <laughs> We have Bob Hastings as Commissioner Gordon and Robert Costanzo as Harvey Bullock. Both fairly minor in this, both excellent on the show, particularly Hastings as Gordon. I mean, every version of Batman Animated Series uh, characters is my preferred version, but Gordon in particular, I usually don't dislike the Gordon either, but... Bullock, my introduction to Harvey Bullock as a character was Batman the Animated Series, so when I went back and read the comics he appeared in, it was weird because they had to soften him a bit.
1: Yeah, what did they say? There was like a quote about that, like, turning him from a dirty cop into like a slightly soiled one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Bullock is sort of like on the animated series. He's rough around the edges, but he's honest, and yeah, he he wants to get the job done, and he believes in justice, and so on. But uh, yeah, in the comics, Bullock is on the take.
2: Oh, I think you just broke Charles' heart. I didn't know that. I just assumed that he was like super late, like criminally lazy.
0: No, no. And Sylvan called him a dirty cop. He was a dirty cop.
2: I'd rather you just. he was actually a clay face the whole time.
0: (laughs) In terms of superhero supporting characters, Bullock is kind of a J. Jonah Jameson, where he's just kind of a lovable grump, even if he's usually antagonizing the superhero.
2: Yep. He's too lazy to antagonize the superhero. The superhero has to come in front of him, and then he's got to, like, poke at him. You saw him in this movie. Anytime he had to do any exercise, he was drenched in sweat.
0: Yeah, Batman the Animated Series Bullock. His heart's usually in the right place. Yeah. Well, after Batman the Animated Series became, like, the defining version of Batman for the Millennials, they kind of retconned Bullock to be closer to his cartoon counterpart.
2: That's right.
0: Particularly in um, Gotham Central, which, good reading, check that out. All right, then we have Arlene Sorkin. They didn't use Harley Quinn in this movie, despite Denny really, really wanting them to, but they still gave her a cameo. She is Bambi. On the piano! <laughs> yeah, she's dancing on the piano, and she's also engagement they had to give her oh, something to do word. speaking of which when Dinny had his head caved in during that experience i mentioned earlier sorkin is the one who brought him to the hospital they were very close
2: That's awesome. Oh my
0: God. Yeah, if you um, want to track down and read that, it's not an easy read, but it's it, it's illuminating. Another thing that Denny talks about is um, he wanted to write an episode of Batman: The Animated Series where Batman encounters death and dream of the Endless, and he got Neil Gaiman to sign off on it, but the network wouldn't let him because Sandman's an adult comic.
1: I, I can see Charles heartbreaking again. <laughs> Why can't it
2: happen now? Why not now? <laughs>
0: But uh, release and reception of this film, it came out on December 25th of 1993 and was released in 1,506 theaters. It got almost no promotion and nobody saw it. It made $5.6 million off of its $6 million budget. However, it did become profitable on home video, which means that Warner Brothers kept churning out Batman animated films, just direct-to-video yeah. where they belong.
1: Increasingly worse. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Sylvan's not fond of Sub-Zero, and neither am I.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mark Hamill likes to tell an anecdote about how he went out to see it on opening day with his wife. The theater was practically empty, except for, like, three or four comic nerds who were sitting in the back. They recognized him, and they were whispering among themselves, but they were too shy to bother him. When he realized that nobody else was coming in, he invited them to come over and sit and watch the movie with him. And the whole time, he was just like, leaning over and telling them anecdotes about working on Batman and Star Wars and so on. <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm very jealous of those comic book nerds, even though I was six years old when this happened.
0: The filmmakers blamed the movie's failure on its eight-month rushed production and very little promotion when it came out. Uh, Reviews of the film were largely very positive. Empire cited it as the best animated film of 1993. Keep in mind, The Lion King also came out in 1993. They mentioned that it was much better written and acted than either of the Tim Burton films which they are very surprised by. TV Guide liked the set pieces and the Art Deco aesthetic. Siskel and Ebert both praised the film very highly. Sis- did, did
1: anybody mention, like, how hard this movie was for children to follow?
0: No one that I came across in contemporary reviews.
1: Like, who is this marketed for? Children are not going to get this.
0: Roger Ebert said that he liked it better than Batman Forever and Batman Returns, but that it wasn't as good as Batman.
1: Well, he was close to right there. It's better than all
0: of them. <laughs> Siskel said that he really liked Batman Forever and he thought it was a much funner movie to watch. But if you want some more Batman after Batman Forever, then you know what? Fantasm's yeah. a good chaser. Both of them said that they didn't like Mark Hamill's vocal performance and that Nicholson was much better.
2: It's okay to be wrong. <laughs> uh, yes,
0: the wa- really? Yeah.
2: I mean, a lot of people do like that performance. Was that their first Joker? Probably
0: I don't get it either. I see it as just another manic Jack Nicholson performance. It's okay, but it doesn't quite work for me. The Washington Post really liked the film. Uh, In particular, they said that the animation was very emotive, and they said that the score was amazing.
2: Both
0: correct. Stephen Holden of the New York Times hated the film. He said that the voice acting was flat and one-dimensional. So
2: he didn't see the movie.
0: (laughs) Leonard Claddy of Variety felt that the film was thematically boring, incredibly shallow, and that the character designs were stiff, awkward, and veered to the point of self-parody.
2: What, no feet did he watch? <laughs> it was just the wrong group to have, like, like oh, okay. Were we even going to pretend to be objective, though? But, like, honestly, my first instinct is like, okay, so he just didn't see the movie and he wanted the paycheck. So he's like, it's animated. It's per- going to be terrible.
0: Personally, I don't think you can be objective when you're talking about art. You. E- you're bringing your own background to it. It's going to reveal more about yourself and the piece you're talking about. Uh, that being said, more recent retrospective reviews, usually done by people who watched this when they were small children. is almost universally positive. Our conclusion that this is the best Batman movie is far from unique. And Sylvan mentioned that, you know, when he was boning up on articles about the film, you're still careful not to spoil who the Phantasm's identity is, even though this movie came out like 27 years ago.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought that was kind of cute. One of the articles I found actually had like any direct reference to Andy being the Phantasm was whited out and you had to like highlight to see the full sentence. I love how people do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, with that out of the way, let's talk about themes. First one I wanted to bring up was centering the story on Batman, which is actually pretty rare for this type of thing. Batman is very frequently a supporting character in his own movies.
1: And that was the approach they took to the TV series that this movie is pulled from.
0: Often, Batman is a reactionary figure who just responds to whatever it is the villain is up to. I believe that this is first codified in the 1966 TV show, where the villains were very consciously made the stars and they got all the good lines. This, however, was carried over to the Burton Schumacher films, the same deal, but with seasoned character actors replaced with A-list movie stars instead. And so, you know, instead we had Burgess Meredith chewing scenery, it's Jack Nicholson. Phantasm is distinct in that it is actually about Batman, which the live-action movies wouldn't actually attempt until Batman Begins.
1: It's also something that on um, the animated series just like jumps right in. You know, Batman is Batman and has been Batman for a while and he's going to keep doing Batman things. They never do the origin story. So this movie is the most fleshed out that that ever gets.
0: I and mean, there are a couple of hallucination sequences. Like I remember there's an episode where Batman gets dosed with Scarecrow's fear gas and he uh, has a nightmare about his parents walking into a subway tunnel that turns into a gun
1: yeah no i mean like we know why he's batman and stuff but they don't like do out the episode the way you know been done to death and every other version of batman so i think that's why they don't well in the
0: 1966 tv show in the very first episode the very first time you see bruce wayne he mentions that his parents were killed and they never bring it up again
1: for the record i'm not really a fan of the the 60s batman show so i, I haven't really watched any of that one <laughs>
2: Okay, I'm a huge
1: fan. to we
2: balance each other out.
1: Everybody has their preferred style of Batman, and I do not like the campy one.
2: Mine is pastel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you both like Brave and the Bold, and that's a pretty campy Batman.
2: Yes, it is. Yeah, I guess that's fair.
0: Uh, Yeah, Batman's motivations are explored here with more depth than they are in a random episode of the TV show. It is very clearly pointed out that Batman lost his parents in an instance of traumatic injustice, although they do not reenact the actual death scene on this because... I guess Tim, done that. Tim and Denny and Burnett were like, everybody knows why Batman is Batman. We don't need to do that again. Uh, yes, Batman lost his parents in an instance of traumatic injustice at an impressionable age and is now resolved to personally prevent such tragedies from recurring to as many others as possible. And if this was the real world, it would be more effective if he used his fortune to do community outreach and eliminate poverty and therefore eliminate circumstances that would allow these muggings to take place. Okay,
1: so one thing that we've talked about already is that, like, you know, there, in your intro you were talking about, like, there's no one definitive version of Batman, et etc., cetera, etc., cetera. but I have, like, tests on whether I think somebody is doing a good job writing Batman or not, and one thing I will point out is that in the animated series, he does all that crap, too. He just also puts on a costume and goes out and punches
2: people.
0: Yeah, and the stuff he does fails, because if the Wayne Foundation actually eliminated crime, then Batman wouldn't be necessary. Gotham needs to be a crime-infested hellhole or Batman doesn't make sense.
1: It's just a very big job. It takes a while to punch all of the supervillains in Gotham, and it also takes a while to address all of the underlying social issues.
0: That's why, um, I mean, I'm getting a little off track, but why I think one of the most valuable additions to Batman's rogues gallery in the past 15 or 20 years is the Court of Owls, because they make Batman into an underdog again and they make him make sense, because why hasn't Batman fixed anything? Why are the cops still corrupt? Why is Arkham Asylum a revolving door? Why can't this billionaire use his fortune to transform the city, because billionaires can do that. They just usually use it for evil in real life. Is because Batman is opposed by a cabal of other billionaires who profit off everything remaining exactly the way it is. Anyways, Batman's goal is ostensibly an honorable one and it is a way for him to sublimate his brush with mortality, take the death of his parents and try to make it mean something and give them a form of immortality and all the good that he's doing in their name. However, this is also a way for him to push others away and armor himself against further pain. A very big part of this film's subtext is that being Batman is too demanding a role for Bruce Wayne and he cannot have any kind of social or personal a life that is something that he struggles with but at the same time if he continues being batman he can't lose anyone he loves anymore because he isn't able to let anyone in presumably this is before any of the robins come along you know when he has a surrogate son just being like hey you're putting me in harm's way and you love me and i think that gets back to i never counted on being happy just grief being a universal element of the human condition we all experience it and it's something that we carry with us for the rest of our lives the loss is painful and the negative feelings Feelings can feel like they'll never abate, and often there's a part of us that doesn't want them to abate because the pain is tied to our love for the person that we lost. The passage of time usually brings a sense of perspective to this grief. Uh, We remember the pain, but also the joy, and it doesn't quite fade so much as it changes, but there are instances where it stunts people emotionally, and I do think that is another element of the phantasm subtext, both with Bruce Wayne and also Andrea Beaumont. I mean, Batman is, of course, an impossible figure. No one can ever possibly become Batman. Batman is an expert at ballistics, martial arts, every form of unarmed combat known to man, actually. He speaks like 17 different languages. He's an ace fighter pilot. He runs a billion-dollar corporation.
1: He's better about circus knowledge than people who have actually been in the circus, such as Silver Age, Batwoman, and Robin.
0: He has memorized film history because a couple of his rogues pull crimes in that idiot. I remember reading an interview with Grant Morrison where he talks about it is possible to physically condition yourself to be as athletic as Batman, but at the very most, you got seven years where you can do that before your body just starts shutting down on you.
2: Oh my god, imagine your
1: knees.
2: (laughs) How many times can you jump on moving vehicles?
1: I like when artists take the time to draw all of the scars that he should have.
0: (laughs) So yeah, even though Batman can't possibly exist in real life... People still connect to figures like him because they see parts of themselves in them. Batman wouldn't be hanging around almost 100 years after his first appearance if this wasn't the case. All right, and uh, the other theme I wrote down was feminine agency, which Sylvan really wanted me to bring up.
1: Yay! yeah I one thing that I that really stuck out to me about Batman the animated series as well in general and this movie in particular is the handling of the female characters you know we watched a lot of like action adventure shows when we were kids and movies and stuff of the period and read a lot of comic books and it was just pretty rare to see female characters treated as whole people with motivations and feelings and being that more than just like love interests who were damsels in distress and not only is andy like not a damsel in distress like she's the fucking bad guy <laughs> <laughs>
0: I mean, she is a damsel, and she is in distress, a distress of her own making, because she's punishing herself and everyone who wronged her father.
1: Yeah, so she's she's treated like one of the actual characters that affect the story, and I fucking love that about her.
2: Yeah, honestly, like with the animated show, too, I, I think Robin gets, like, damsel distress more than the damsels. Fuck yeah,
1: <laughs> it's great. No, I've always appreciated that about her character. I like that she's flawed, that she's not held up to some ridiculous standard. I like that she seems like she could be a real person. Oh, and the way she's animated too. Like she's got curves, like real ones. There are body types like that that exist. The arm fat.
2: Mm-hmm. It's great.
0: Yeah, she does look like she's done push-ups, though. Uh, yeah, actually having a motivation, twisted as it is, was unusual for female characters and superhero media of this time. I think that might be also why we glommed onto the X-Men the way we did. Yep. Because Claremont spent a solid 15 years favoring the female characters, and that meant that they had some dimension to them when it was time to turn them into a Saturday morning cartoon.
1: Yeah, um, having uh, still thought I was a girl when when these shows were coming out um, and, you know, wanting to play the female characters and stuff and we were doing like adventure games or playing with our action figures or whatever. It was nice to have characters who were like interesting and got to participate in the action and do the fighting and stuff instead of like, all say, Jean- an April O'Neil type.
2: I was going to say all Jean Grey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or instead of being Jean Grey, yeah. I could be Rogue instead. Much better.
2: A team of seven gene grays.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, But they all do it. Hey, Professor X screams when he's overwhelmed by psychic energy that is malevolent as well. Ah! (laughs) All right, we're getting a little off topic, but um, I think that, yeah, that wraps up the majority of my notes. Is there anything that either of you would like to mention about Mask of the Phantasm before we conclude things?
1: Go ham. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh yes uh <laughs> Well, you should tell. This is your memory.
1: Okay, so um, when I was in high school, I was revisiting the animated series for the first time since elementary school, because that's when it was coming out on DVD, and got very obsessed with it, and um, while I was sleeping over our older cousin's house, who's about five years older than me, I wanted her to watch this movie, because I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. This was not actually made for children. They pretended, but it's actually just a really good movie, and you're gonna like it. And she was very reluctant, but she sat down and watched it with me and when they go back to the world's fair setting after it's become the joker's hideout you can see the the sign like the letters are falling down and jen was reading it and goes go ham oh it's dilapidated okay
0: because it was a flashback we're in the present day again
1: uh, another cute moment from her because she got very invested in the movie like right away it sucked her in after they kind of classily like they more imply that bruce and andrea andrea have had sex because you can't really show that this is still even though it was not really made for kids it is still technically a kids movie but you know there's a morning after scene where she's wearing his shirt and no pants and jen was all scandalized had sex. This is a children's movie. They can't do that. <laughs> like I did not know that they had sex when I was 7. It's fine. <laughs> oh, one thing I do remember is um you telling me about when we were kids watching it and the scene where Batman puts on the cowl for the first time and Alfred's all afraid and when you were finally old enough to figure out like, "Oh, that's because this is in the past and that was his first time seeing him as Batman." <laughs> The flashbacks really fucked us up when we were kids.
0: I don't remember if I was surprised when it turned out that Andy was the phantasm.
1: Yeah, I don't think, I can't remember how I responded to
2: that. Probably with a feeling of cool. (laughs) Um, I can tell you that our youngest sibling was terrified of this movie. And my earliest memories were helping comfort her so that she could get to the parts that she liked watching. She's like, no, 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 look away now. Okay, now you can watch. She especially hated the one where you see the old dude just like dead in the chair with that face. Yeah. I liked that stuff,
1: but I liked being scared of things.
0: My reaction is probably along the lines of, "No, she's the phantasm. They can't be together now."
2: Oh, <laughs> I love that.
0: Yeah, I a sentimental little bitch. So. <laughs> because you know for me it
1: wasn't a deal breaker i was like okay when's she gonna come back on the show
0: because the phantasm doesn't show up in any of the other episodes that should have been a clue for me
1: (laughs) i was waiting
0: (laughs) i mean she has a random ass cameo in the last episode of well one of the last episodes of justice league which i think you found mostly disappointing because it takes place in the batman beyond uh
1: yeah she's interacting with terry oh
2: okay i'm like i have any recollection of this
1: fight yeah i can show it to you it's there it happens it's not that exciting
2: nothing's more exciting than old man static shock yeah she's (laughs) working
0: she's working for elderly amanda waller
2: oh come on (laughs) i know i like the
0: wall all right if that's it this one is an important one for i think all of us so hope we stuck the landing thanks for listening either way
2: go ham